Good tidings, everyone. This is Michael Gobier from the Hey! It's Enrico Palazzo Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 263, Pee-wee's Big Adventure Movie Review. Chris McBride along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. It's still summertime, so that means, you know, Derek, you and I are pretty busy outside the little show here. So we've been away for a couple of weeks, but but we're back this week with a movie review. Now, recently, Paul Rubens passed away, so we thought it might be a good idea to go back and watch Pee Wee's Big Adventure from 1985 and do a full review of the film here this week. But before we get to that, Derek, what is new in the world of pop culture for you? Hey, Chris. It's uh, been, been a couple of weeks. Good to be back. Mm-hmm. And I uh, hope your summer's Always. been good. I know as a, as a teacher, you uh, get your summers off. So you're trying mm-hmm. to pack 12 months worth of fun into two months. So uh, hopefully that's working for you. Anyway. It is. It okay, is. that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I had a chance to watch a few things uh, in the last two weeks since we, we had our last show. Uh, I got a little bit of everything on here, uh, but I'll try and keep it short. First, I'm going to start with uh, with a rotter. So, you know, I recommend movies to you all the time. I know you don't always have a chance to watch all of them. And mm-hmm. from time to time, you recommend movies to me. And, and again, I try to watch them where I can. On a show not too long ago, you had mentioned a more recent movie you saw, and you talked about how bad it was. And I just sort of nodded my head politely and went, yeah, that's fine. But when it comes on TV, I'm going to watch it. And I did, and it was awful, and you were right. And the movie is 65. Oh, starring God. Adam that, that was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Oh, my God. It was garbage. I couldn't get through it. I got about yeah. 45 minutes into yeah. it, and I just kept thinking, come on. It's a guy with a laser gun shooting dinosaurs. How bad can this be? Exactly. Oh, it was it was terrible. I, terrible. I couldn't even finish it. And it, it was on... It, it premiered on uh, Crave HBO here about a, a week ago, and I just happened to have it on. And then a couple hours later, I, I went into the other room where my wife was watching TV, and she was just starting it. And I said to her, you're not going to like this. She's like, no, no, it should be okay. It's Adam morning. Driver. He's good. Well, and I mean, I'm not even a big fan of Adam Driver, but I'm like, fine, I'll give it a shot. Anyway, yeah, a little bit later that night, uh, uh, you know, I went back around the room because we have different TVs in different rooms. I went back into the room where she was watching and she was, was watching something else. I said, what happened to 65? She's like, I couldn't even get into it as much as you did. She's like, it was pretty bad. So, yep. yeah, no, it was awful. If you have a chance to see it, don't uh, don't watch it. It was bad. It was really, really, really bad. That's good so, that we agree on something. Yeah, so I like that. That's anyway, nice. everything else I got on my list is really, really good. So okay. uh, I had a chance uh, on Amazon Prime. I've been seeing previews that they're doing season two of a show called Good Omens. And I thought, I never watched season one. So I went back and watched season one. It's six episodes. It's uh, based on a book that was written by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman and many, many years ago. And then the season one came out, I want to say about a year, maybe two years ago. Or actually, maybe it even came out earlier than that. And it has David Tennant and... 
Oh my God, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. This is the second week in a row. I'm blanking on the guy's name here. Um, David Tennant and you Michael know, Sheen. You know I can't there back we go. I got it, I got this. it, Michael Sheen. And okay. uh, they play a, an angel and a devil who basically, instead of doing what they're supposed to do on Earth, they decide, yeah, we're just going to have a good time. And they actually become good friends, and then shenanigans ensue. And it was really good. Uh, it had gotten very positive reviews. I finally got around to watching it. I really liked it. Season two just dropped. I haven't had a chance to get to it yet. I've been hearing a lot of mixed reviews on it, so I'm gonna give it a little. I'm gonna give it a little time before I jump into it because with season one being so good, I, I'm worried that season two is just gonna be disappointing. Um, despite the fact that it is getting some positive review. So anyway, Good Omen season one on Amazon. If you haven't seen it before, give it a shot. Uh, like so many of these great British series, it's only six episodes, uh, so you don't have to invest a ridiculous amount of time in it, but it was quite good. Uh, and then we got to go out to the theater, and we're, we got we, you know we gave into the hype, and we saw the Barbie movie. Oh, Chris, wow. you had a chance to see Barbie? I have not, no. Let me tell you. It was the best movie I've seen all year. It is oh, wow. absolutely going to be nominated up and down the board for awards. It was fantastic. It was better than the hype. It was way better than I expected it to be. There is just so many good things about this movie. Everyone should go see it. It's a movie for women. It's a movie for men. It's a movie for little girls. It's a movie for little boys. But for different reasons. Different people are going to get different things out of it. And uh, it was fantastic. And it looks spectacular the visuals are amazing the direction the cinematography the costumes the makeup all of it and the performances are great there it, there is it is just so many good things to see about this movie if you haven't had a chance to go see barbie i strongly recommend it two huge thumbs up it nice. is it is not just one of these ones where people are like oh you know it can't possibly be as good as yeah. everyone's saying it's Fo as good fox, as everyone's news, saying. fox news tells me that it's woke crap so I, I'm surprised it's so good. I, I'm not. I can't. I can't agree with that at all. But uh, <laughs> neither can I. No. Ten out of ten. A plus. It looks good. That's all yeah. here. I, I fully intend to see it again in the theater before it's done. Uh, just it's one of these movies where once you've seen it once and you sort of know what's going on, I'm sure I'm going to find more stuff the second time through. And and I I have no problem paying the full price money to go see it the second time in the theater. It was fantastic. And it's not like one of the fastest movies to a billion dollars worldwide in history. Like it's just setting records. It's it's doing yeah, so well. It's, so it's, it's fantastic. Good. It's so good. good. And uh, I haven't had a chance to see Oppenheimer yet. So I haven't been able to experience the full Barbie Oppenheimer. What are they? The Barbenheimer, mm -hmm. I think they're calling it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Oppenheimer's three hours. It's a long, boring drama. I mean, I'll see it eventually, but uh, no, I'm, I think I'm going to go see Barbie again before I go see Oppenheimer once. Not because I've heard Oppenheimer is bad. It's just you got to be in the right mood to see a long, right. slow, depressing movie about the creation of the nuclear bomb. Sorry, mm -hmm. spoiler alert for people yeah. who don't know who Oppenheimer was. Um, in any case, then I had a chance to uh, read a book and see a documentary, but let's do the book first. Okay. So my, I think I mentioned on the last show, I have an Audible account. And yes, every month yes, with Audible, you, you, you get charged a fee and you get a credit to download a free book. Well, I haven't been doing that. So I've got this, this huge pile of credits. And I started getting all these notices from Amazon going, your credits are going to expire unless mm -hmm. you download some books. So I've been downloading some books and listening to them as fast as I can so that I don't lose the credits. Uh, the one I finished listening to uh, between this show and the last show is a book called The 90s. And it's about the 1990s. Mm -hmm. It's by the author Chuck Klosterman. Uh, he is a regular guest on the Ringer Podcast Network. I listen to a whole bunch of different podcasts on that uh, on that stream, and uh, so that's how I heard about it. And 
if you lived through the 90s or you're fascinated with the 90s, this book is fantastic. He talks about everything. It's pop culture. It's politics. It's the, you know, just the way the world changed, the invention of the Internet and technology and just just how how much our world changed in one decade and and the perspective he brings to it and he addresses how different people are going to get different things out of it depending on whether or not you live through the 90s if you were a young person if you were an old person it was really really good um i learned even as someone who lived through the 90s i learned a ton of stuff listening to this book and the author chuck Klosterman, actually reads it himself and and he's he's got a great voice for narration like that's why he does podcasting and it's really really good it's called the 90s but it's spelled out not just the number nine zero um it's the 90s uh, fantastic and then finally i had a chance to watch a documentary for 40 days and 40 nights watch documentaries he likes to learn about the world it's derek's documentaries derek's documentaries what did you learn about this time? I, I learned about internet influencers. Oh. So there's a six-part documentary series on Disney Plus called The Age of Influence. Mm. It's six episodes that run 45 minutes to an hour, and each one talks about someone who gained fame and or notoriety in most cases by exerting their influence through social media and the internet. I'm, ass- and- I'm assuming we didn't make the list. No, well, we haven't gone to jail yet, so it, it, I, just about every one I watched involves somebody going to prison. Oh, um, okay. There was one about like uh, a bodybuilder guy who was like the the most recognized uh, social media person when it came to like um, steroids and muscle. Like I think his thing was called Musclehead, um, and it was all about just how he was then able to use his influence as as a bodybuilder or to then sell. Um, anabolic steroids illegally through the internet and stuff and how he made all this money. Um, there was, uh, anyway, I, 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 I'm, there were six episodes. I can't even think of what they all were right now, but that was the one I watched last. Uh, so that's why it's sort of top of mind, but it was fascinating. Some of the topics were a little less interesting to me. Um, but some of them were just riveting and fascinating and I, I couldn't stop watching. It was so uh, in some cases, it just seems so obvious what these influencers were doing. But I, I suppose in the moment, the people that followed them wanted to believe that what they were saying was true. And in, in every episode, the influencer goes on to do something despicable. And usually it involves swindling people out of money, stealing money, uh, conning people out of their hard-earned cash. In some cases, it's even they they swindle single people out of millions of dollars. And uh, it's in some cases... It's done in a way that's quite sophisticated. In most cases, it's actually pretty obvious when you think about it and you see it after the fact. But it's a real cautionary tale about the power people have when they become famous through the Internet, in many cases for really not doing anything other than being famous. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, six parts, Age of Influence on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I think it dropped last, late last year, so it's less than a year old. But, uh, no, quite good. So Awesome. Yeah. What about um, you? Would you have a chance to watch? I, so I, I, I got. Days? I got. Of course, I watched the Love Boat. I got to do a one thing, but I just want to mention. I know we usually wait till the end of the year to do a retrospective, and we look back on the year and we mention celebrities that have passed away. But I just want to mention two in the last two weeks the, that have died, and that's Sinead O'Connor and Robbie Robertson. I thought they were both amazing, almost geniuses in their own right. 
And they were also both from a bygone era. You know, they're both Gen X sort of staples. And so I just wanted to mention that that both of them, like when Sinead O'Connor died, I think a lot of people always remember her for Nothing Compares to You. But I always liked that song, The Emperor's New Clothes. Yeah. You know, you know that's it's such a yeah, I know. good I song. It's a good song. Man, I like that song so much. And Robbie Robertson, of course, guitar player for the band. He's Canadian. It's great. But I also liked in, in the eighties when he kind of went back to his roots with his native roots and he and he put out that album. Um, the one song uh, somewhere down the crazy river. That was just like a bizarre, weird song, but it was but it was mm-hmm. pretty good. But I really liked Showdown at Big Sky. I always liked that song. I don't know. I always thought Robbie Robertson was just great. So I just want to mention that um, those two celebrities died and I thought they were both great. And now I mentioned at the top, the summers are very busy for you and I, and it's hard, you know, for us to get to recording a show every week. You know, the kids are out of the school for me and stuff. And they keep me busy. That's for sure. So last week I was away. Guess what I did, Derek? Uh, let me guess. You watched The Love Boat. You watched WKRP. <laughs> I did do those things. But in addition to that, I also took my family whitewater rafting down the Ottawa River here nice. in Canada. So let's just say I stepped outside my comfort zone just a little bit. No kidding. Um, yeah. like you, you know, I usually spend my time watching like old movies and TV shows. But I decided to get up off the couch, you know, and do something completely different. And it definitely was different for me anyway. Um, there was a time when we were going down the river and we had to get out of this like big raft and walk along all these rocks on this embankment over the river. I don't like heights and I'm not exactly sure footed. Let's just say. So it was really difficult for me, but, uh, but I survived and I did it. And, uh, but anyway, how does this relate to pop culture? Here's the thing. We went down the river and no banjos. There was no hillbilly inbred playing dueling banjos and no hillbillies trying to make me do a Ned Beatty impersonation. So well, I was, I was going to say, you're nice. no, you're no Burt Reynolds, bud. Sorry to tell you. Yeah, exactly. Well, but I got this. Here's your dad joke of the week. So I figured since we're going back and we're going to review Pee Wee's Big Adventure this week that I do a Pee Wee Herman joke for you. Okay. okay. Uh, keep, keep it clean. Family show. I'll do my best. No promises. Mm-hmm. So, so, Derek, what do John Wilkes Booth and Pee Wee Herman both have in common? Oh, I'm sure it's going to be something inappropriate at a theater. Lay it on me, Chris. I don't know. What, what do they have in common? They both in a theater. Oh. I was close. I was so close. <laughs> Roger Moore is James Bond. I think it's really funny that you can say octopusy, but you can't say, hey, this is not cool. I was a real nerd. (laughs) No kidding. Here's a song. Here's a song. Here's a song. Oh, stop playing that damn (laughs) Stop it. I was like, oh my God, what's going on here, dude? (laughs) Your wife has got great taste in pop culture. They're definitely phony baloney, but you just have to accept them. I mean, she's no Ryan Reynolds. This is what's big now. Back in the day. You can look at me all you want, but you're not touching me because you're a gross old man. Okay, so let's just go ahead and get this out of the way before we get to the movie. Paul Rubens. Now, he just died uh, in July from cancer, and he didn't disclose that, that he even had that illness to the public. But as as much as Pee Wee Herman was this ingenious character, and so, so well done... Paul Rubin's obviously a very talented guy, but he was also a very troubled guy. So, 
Back in 1991, he was arrested in an adult movie theater in Sarasota, Florida for, how can we say, exposing himself. We'll just say that. Um, So he was doing something in public that's normally done in private. All right, let's go with that. And it wasn't even the first time that he'd gotten in trouble in Sarasota. Because like 20 years before that, he was arrested for loitering and prowling around an adult movie theater. I just, I don't understand the 1991 arrest. Because by then, there was home video. VHS was a thing in 1991. So if you wanted to watch an adult film, all he had to do was get a VHS copy and watch it at home. You know, there was no need to go to an adult movie theater in 1991. Like, you know, I mean, and, and, and not that I'm, a, I'm approving of it, but at least the 1971 address or the, the arrest that he had. There was no VHS back then. So if you ha- if you wanted to watch that kind of stuff, I mean, you had to go to one of those kind of theaters. But by 1991, like, what the hell was he thinking? I mean, and he's famous by then. Like, just dude, stay home. You know, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was the friends you make along the way. Maybe <laughs> maybe it was the social experience of being around other people. I don't know. Yeah, they always they always say it's they always say it's better to watch a movie in the movie theater just for the whole the, just, shared just, the shared experience, the shared movie going experience. <laughs> now, just to be clear, though, and and I don't know the answer to this, and maybe okay. you do, maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. This this is one thing that I, I never felt was clear, but was implied if it wasn't true or not was. The adult theater he was in was not all men, right? Like it wasn't a gay porno theater. No. As far no, as I know. No. Okay. Because no, I think that was sort of implied a lot that it was like that that angle. And I think that was part of why it, it sort of had this stigma to it in the 90s is, you know, that was clearly less acceptable then than it might be now. The, the Being gay, not, you know, doing what he did. But um yeah, that was that was always sort of seemed like a gray area. Like the media sort of didn't come right out and say one way mm-hmm. or the other, but I always got the I always felt like that was sort of the implication and and that might have been why there was so much outrage. Uh mm-hmm. because uh, you know, wrongly of course, um people in the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s even often associated homosexuality with pedophilia, which you know, is not the case, but they were always seemed to be painted with the same brush. And the fact that his persona was primarily geared towards children, that his character was basically like a man child, the implications that there might be some gay connection, I think really freaked people out. Um, and, and I think the fact that those details were not accurate, what was unfortunate Mm -hmm. and, and his career clearly suffered for it. But that that was always part of the, the 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 what was said versus what was unsaid part of it. At least that was always my my sort of takeaway. Uh, absolutely, first. And, and interestingly enough, in two thousand and two, he was arrested for possession of child pornography. Now, apparently, it was the Rob Lowe sex tape that he had. So, if you if you're not aware of it, back in the eighties, Rob Lowe videotaped himself having intercourse with his then girlfriend, who was a minor. So mm-hmm. this qualified as child pornography under the law. But the, the charges against Paul Rubens for possession of child pornography were, were eventually dropped. Mm-hmm. And, but he was, he, they also found all this, like, he had this possession of, like, this old erotica. So he was charged with possession of lewd material. But, again, there's a lot of murkiness about the whole thing. But the bottom line is, he was obviously a bit of a troubled guy. And, and, and no matter what your fetishes are, 
when you're famous, you have to be careful. Yeah. And in his case, he wasn't. And and it cost him his career. You know, I, I, I mean, by the time he was arrested in 91, Pee Wee's Playhouse had already been canceled, I guess. But maybe his career was already over. I don't know. But but you and I have talked about how difficult it is sometimes to separate the art from the artist. What are your yeah. thoughts when it comes to Paul Rubens? So, I mean, I, I always enjoyed his work. Like it, I was, I was sort of the, the target demographic when he was big, when Pee Wee's Play, when Pee Wee's Playhouse, like when the, this movie, Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Pee Wee's Playhouse were on TV, like I was 10, 11, 12 years old. Like that I think was the audience they were shooting for. The comedy was like geared for younger people, but I, I never got the sense it was geared for like little, little, little kids. Like it worked for little kids because there's a lot of visual things that little kids find amusing and funny. But I found the humor was um, in many cases there were it was implied or there was, um, you know, it, it was it was more like smart humor. You know what I mean? It wasn't mm. just, you know, the traditional and fart jokes and, and funny noises, although he did the whole thing where it's like, let's scream real loud at the secret word and things of that nature, which appealed to people of all ages. But, um, yeah, I always, I always found that he was, uh, unique and interesting to your point. He, he created this persona. My understanding is he sort of started in stand up and sketch comedy and it's like, that's a very difficult and competitive arena. So you really need an angle or a bit or something that that'll separate you from the pack. And the, the character of Pee Wee Herman, the way he dresses, the way his, he speaks, his affectations, the way he looks, uh, that he's essentially that that man child like there was nothing else like it 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 filled a void that people maybe didn't know they needed to have filled right no no implications there um but i've i always enjoyed his work and then when when all of this came to light by then i was you know late teens uh and at at that point i was like oh well poor guy this is what happened to him want want and i went on with my life but then later in the 90s in the early 2000s he started to appear in, in things again uh you know smaller roles usually uh, in a way that was sort of wink, wink, sort of playing a little bit against the problems he had had. And like, I don't think he ever really recovered from it, but I always found that when he appeared in something, even after, you know, the things happened in the nineties, like I never held it against him and never went like, Oh my God, I can't, I'm not going to see that he's in it. Like, so what, you know, like again, if, if the things that, that he did and the things he was charged with happened today, to a person of that same sort of that age, that gender and those, those locations, who cares? Like we've moved on as a society in a lot of places where it's like, so what the guy likes to get in a movie theater. Like it's, he shouldn't be, but no one's losing their career over that anymore. So you mentioned that he started out as a stand-up comic. He actually got involved with the groundlings. Uh, they were basically like the Los Angeles version of second city. And he auditioned for Saturday night live for the cast right after the initial cast left, like in mm-hmm. 1980, and he didn't get the gig. They went with Gilbert Gottfried instead. Lauren Michaels felt Gottfried and Paul Rubens were pretty similar. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, And he was like, we don't want them both. So they went with Gilbert Gottfried. But uh, when Paul Rubens was with the Groundlings, uh, he was doing an improv one night with the audience. And, you know, he started improving as a stand-up comic that wasn't very good at stand-up. Okay. And that was the the improv that they did. And then he started to kind of took that and took bits of that and bits of other characterizations he'd been working on and kind of rolled it all together. And he came up with Pee Wee Herman. But no matter how he got there, he, did he ever create an amazing character? Like, 
<laughs> it was so amazing. But but before he he perfected that Pee Wee character, he also appeared in Cheech and Chong's next movie. He was he was he played that yeah. bad stand up comic kind of character yeah. there. He was in the Blues Brothers. Remember, he was a waiter at Shape Hall, and he was on the Dating Game three times. The last one he did as Pee Wee Herman. And he won. <laughs> that was interesting. So, so th- that brings me to the, the character. So Pee Wee Herman. What the hell is Pee Wee Herman? Is he a kid? Is he a man child? Like those mannerisms and, and all that. There's so much subtext going on. There is so yeah. much going on at once with that character. I think, I think that's what I like about it. I think it's not just a one note character. There is a yeah. lot going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I was watching the movie this week, and and I was thinking the same thing because I, I uh, unfortunately I don't have it at the top of my head, but I want to say when Pee Wee's Big Adventure came out, he was as an as an in real life he was like thirty years old, right? Yeah, he, like he was in his late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. Yeah. And so knowing that when I watched it, it's like it's clear that I think the 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 character is supposed to be a little younger than that, but not that much younger. Like he's probably supposed to be in his like mid twenties, yet his like his house and the things he does seem very childish and childlike, but in an innocent way, uh, you know, like I'm looking around the, the, the room where I'm recording this right now. And it's like, I have action figures and toys and posters of superheroes and, and things that are basically the modern today equivalent of what Pee Wee had in his house. Like, you know, I can, so I can relate to that yet. He, you know, it's like he rides, he rides the bike, but you also see him driving a car. So it's like, he's clearly an adult in that sense. Um, but you don't see him doing a lot of adult things. Like even though the girl at the bike shop likes him, it doesn't seem like he's interested in a romantic relationship. Mm. Um, you know, but he can pick up on some of the subtleties when he's speaking with people, but then he does childish things like, you know, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are. So it's this, it's this sort of weird conundrum where it's like, is he supposed to be a little kid? Is he supposed to be a grown up who thinks he's a little kid? Is he a, is he an adult who just wants to act childish because he can? Is he an adult who's acting childish because he just never learned how to be an adult? Um, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting point of discussion. I'm thinking of like, uh, by comparison, say like a character like Sheldon on the big bang theory where yes, he's an adult, but he's just extremely naive. So he does childish things because he just doesn't have the desire to learn how to do the adult things. But eventually through the course of that show, he does. So it's like this Pee Wee character was definitely ahead of his time. Like there was nothing like it. And I think we can look at a lot of other pop culture where they've leaned on that concept at least a little bit. You can see where more recent characters from other things have clearly been influenced by the Pee Wee Herman character. So I agree. It's that whole ambiguousness too. Yeah. Like even like when you watch something like Napoleon Dynamite, same thing. Yes. It's all ambiguous. Like and, and it's it's kind of drawing from this. So this movie, I I had seen the first half of this movie several times, but I don't know if I'd ever actually sat down and watched the whole thing from start to finish in one sitting until this week. I'd only seen it like maybe two or three times before this. I Definitely remember seeing it in the theater because I was a fan. Oh, I didn't of, see it in the theater. Yeah. I, I was a fan of the Pee Wee Herman character. So I remember seeing the theater. And then I remember that he got the Pee Wee's Playhouse TV show, which came out not long after that. And I can remember watching that again. I was pretty young when that came out. I wasn't, I was like before I was in high school, like I was nine, 10, 11 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood when that came out. And then I probably only saw, I've probably only seen the full thing start to finish since 1985. Like, 
two or three times. But to your point, if it's been on TV or I flicked around, I've seen bits and pieces of it many times. Certain scenes come up more and you're like, oh, I'm just going to watch this scene and then I got to run. Um, so, yeah, to your point, it had probably been, geez, 15 probably between 15 and 20 years since I've actually sat down and watched it start to finish. Well, for me, like I said, I don't think I've ever watched it in one sitting. So having seen it this week for the sort of first time with the whole thing, this movie is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I liked it way brilliant. more now than I think I did. I think, again, I think that a little bit of age and a little bit of um, context have gone a long way to my appreciation of what this movie was trying to do in 1985 and uh, and how it's it's I think it's gotten better with time. One of the single most unique films I've ever seen in my entire life. I could say that. So yeah. it was it was written by Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman. Who yeah, Rubens, I was shocked to yeah. see Phil Hartman had a writing credit. on. Well, that. Rubens and him were friends because they both did the Groundlings together, which I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, yeah. And then the director we got to talk about Tim Burton. He oh God, was yeah. the perfect director for this movie. And it is one of the reasons why I think it's so good in my opinion. So Rubens wanted uh, to get Tim Burton to direct this after he saw Frankenweenie. Yeah. Know, which is the original, the, the short film. Not yeah. The, the short, the, not, yeah, not the new one that he did or whatever. The short, because this is before Tim Burton had done anything. This was his yeah. first studio feature film. He'd done a bunch of short films in the seventies, but this was, this was sort of it. Okay. So the movie, the movie starts off and Pee Wee wakes up from a dream when he's winning the tour de France. Of course it is, yeah. by the way. And he just immediately starts jumping up and down on his bed. And then he puts on these bunny slippers and he uses one to like smell this plush carrot. And then he plays yeah. with Mr. Potato Head and he slides down a pole into the kitchen and where there's this whole Rube Goldberg. Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, I looked that up. I knew on. it had a name. Yeah. I couldn't remember it. Yeah. And, and and Tim Burton used that again in Edward Scissorhands, if you remember, that whole Rube Goldberg He uses thing. it in a few of yeah. his things. I think he really likes that kind of just strangely bizarre, overcomplicated for no reason other than it's fun to watch. It's interesting to look at. And then, and then after that, Pee Wee goes to the mirror and he tapes his face with like scotch tape and then yeah, that, laughs. That I didn't really get other than just being silly. Because I think right from the get-go, all those things... He's just got this odd zest for life. Yeah. Like he's just genuinely happy to be awake and starting his day. And it's just such a great way to start the film and introduce the audience to this bizarre character. You know what you think? You're like, I mean, the whole yeah. opening scene is genius. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Well, and I think that in addition to everything you've mentioned, I want to just touch on it now, but we'll come back to it later, is this scene it goes from good to great because of the music that accompanies it. And we'll talk oh, yeah. more about that later. Absolutely. But, but I, I agree. This opening sets the say You get the idea of who this character is. You get a, an idea of how bizarre the visuals are going to be. You get to hear this odd music s uh, score that's accompanying it. And exactly like you said, it, and it already, right in the first scene, opens up the question of like, who is this kid? He lives by himself. He, you know, he yet he brushes his teeth and he makes breakfast and he can clearly take care of this little dog. And like part of my mind was, how does he pay for this house? Like, yeah. does he have what a does job? What does he do for a living? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's and but at the same time, it's like, OK, well, he's clearly an adult. He lives by himself and he's got he's got this, you know, he can can take care of himself. But he, he acts so childlike and you almost want to say, like, does this does he have like a mental illness? Is he not all there upstairs? But it's like, no, no, he's clearly clearly his his. You know, his, his, his brain works like his, his higher functions are there. He's not stumbling and tripping over things. He's not 
you know, struggling to do everyday tasks. Like he's clearly, these are all deliberate choices and deliberate actions that, that he's making. And, uh, and, and it's just, it's just bizarre and unusual and unexpected, which, which adds to sort of the humor and the interest. You're like, okay, well, this is a very interesting character. It's not like anything I've seen before. Now in the first five minutes, I want to know what's going to happen next. I like even the way he eats his breakfast. Like you mentioned, he's got this plate of pancakes with this bacon for a face and he pours Mr. T cereal on it. And then it's like he eats like two pieces of cereal and then moves on. Yeah. <laughs> like instead of finishing it, it's just so weird. And again, the whole time it's like this exuberance, this joy for life. It's almost like he doesn't have time to eat. He's too busy moving on to the to the next great thing in his day. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So That's a good amazing. way to think of it. Yeah. yeah. So Watching this movie this week, like I say, for me, like really the first time from start to finish, I'd seen the beginning quite a bit, but it didn't matter. It was like watching it for the first time. There's so much going on in this opening scene. I think you could watch this movie a hundred times and still feel like it's fresh when you watch yeah, it. There, yeah, there's so many little details there. The, and again, that that is a credit to the people that made this film, the writers, the directors, the production people that... There are things there that you are going to just glance past and not even not even notice it, but it's there for a reason. It's important to help establish the story, the character, the setting. And to your point, you watch it two or three times and you start looking for I know whenever I watch something, you know, a second, third or fourth time, I start to watch more than just what's in the foreground. I start to look at the background players. I start to look at the scenery, like what what is on the table while they're in the restaurant speaking. And you realize that a lot of those little things are not there by accident. And this movie is a really good example of just so many things that are definitely there on purpose. And, it, and it's it's almost like a little reward. Every time you watch this, you're going to get rewarded with something you didn't catch the last time. I'm really glad you mentioned the music because it was it was Danny Elfman who, you know, we know from things like, you know, The Simpsons and The Simpsons, and, you know, Batman, Batman and stuff like that. But this was really like his real first sort of thing that he did. And it's just so noticeable. His style is right Sorry, there it, from the get go. It was his first musical score. He was right. a musician in the band Oingo Boingo right. previous to this. True. And the song Dead Man's Party, still a great eighties tune. But it was um, the first time where he really did a music or a sort yes. of the musical score of a film. Yes. You yeah. Know? And, but it's just, it's so recognizable when you go back and if, if you didn't know and you watch it again you, with that in mind, it's like, it just jumps out at you. Like that's Danny yeah. Elfman. Like he's For got sure. such a style. You know? and, and it was the, the beginning of the Danny Elfman, Tim Burton partnership, yeah. which, you know, it's like the, uh, it's like the Steven Spielberg, uh, uh, John Williams partnership, right? Like right. certain, certain movie creators and musicians just end up finding a groove and you, you can't imagine them working independently of each other. So I want to mention uh, some of the people that are in it, just briefly. Francis, Mark Holton. He was also in The Naked Gun. He was the fan in the stands, remember at the baseball game, that recognizes Leslie Nielsen? He's like, hey, that? it's Enrico Palazzo! Hey, it's Enrico Palazzo. That was yeah. him. And he was in Teen Wolf, wasn't he? As yes, he was chubby. He was a fat yeah. guy on the basketball team. With Michael yeah, that's where I remember him from. Yeah. He was in Teen Wolf too, as well. Or as Teen I like Wolf to call also? it, Teen Wolf also. As you know. um, the scene where Francis and Pee Wee meet on the road, you mentioned it briefly. I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? The whole thing just feels like it's improvised. Probably was. Well, <laughs> and that's right from his stand-up act, right? Yeah. It's And that's always a danger I find when comedians who have established 
characters or established bits or routines are given an opportunity to be on screen, whether it's TV or film, usually film, where they just feel they have they have to just shoehorn in their best bits from their stand up into their film debut. And often it just doesn't work. It feels really forced. But I did find that there was a number of things that he does here that I've I was fairly certain had had originated in his stand up routine as he developed this character that just worked great. That was one of them. That whole scene with Francis and uh, the tequila scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little yeah, bit later. Like that, just, that, it just it fit perfectly in in the way that it did. But I wanted to mention Dottie Elizabeth yep. Daly. She was perfectly cast as Dottie. Now, as an actress, she mostly did voice work. She did um, Babe in the sequel, Babe, Pig in the City. She yeah, I didn't know that. I had to look that up. That. Oh, she yeah. did so good in that. Uh, but I thought she was just great, just great in this role. But I just want to kind of like walk through the movie a little bit. So it starts off he, and he's riding his bike down the street and then he falls right in front of this group of kids. And he's, he's like, trying to show off. Yeah, I meant to do that. Like yeah. kids always say that, right? To save face. And again, I'm like, is he a kid? Is he a grown up? Like what the yeah. hell? Who who knows? And then he goes into Mario's magic shop. Yeah. And he goes through the store, which feels like an improvised scene. Like it I just really I, did feel improvised, it, but it worked. It, it almost felt like Tim Burton just put a bunch of magic store props in the store and just let Rubens just improvise his way around the shop. Like, well, and I read, I read like that it. a lot of the stuff that appeared in the film were things that Paul Rubens actually owned. Like apparently he was really into like prop, like gag props and things like that. So it wouldn't surprise me to your point. Yeah. If either Tim Burton said, I'm just going to put a bunch of stuff there, go for it. Or if even he, Tim Burton was like, we're going to do this. And Rubens like, let me place a few things here that I know I can work with just in case we hit some slow patches. And in the whole scene though, it just exudes that zest for life. Again, yes. like they just, they do such a good job of establishing the character in the opening yep. 20 minutes, I think. So Chuck's bike-o-rama, he mm -hmm. and he pulls up and he locks his bike to this robotic clown out front. And he pulls that sort of endless length of chain out of the side bin of the bike. Because it's his, like, his most prized possession, right? He wants to make sure no one steals it. So like you said, he goes in and Dottie's got that new horn for him. And she's like, mm -hmm. she's like, well, I'll give this to you, but I, you got to go out with me on a date. I love his response because he's like, I like you, Dottie. Like. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's like, there's things about you you don't understand. There's things you, sh you shouldn't understand. I'm a rebel, Dottie. And then he gives this childlike laugh and walks out. And it's just such a bizarre scene yeah. for this bizarre guy. Like, I, I just don't understand what it's all about. It's It's like. In one way, like the character has a bit of a dark side, but at the same time, it's just, he's like this fun, loving, overgrown child. It's, it's so weird. So anyway, he goes outside and his bike is gone. Someone's, and then everyone in town is riding bikes. It's like person after person. I, I never noticed that before, it's but so I noticed it this funny. time and I laughed. Oh, I, I was, was laughing clever. so much because it's all so surreal and I think maybe that's one of the good ways to describe the movie, too, is that it's just surreal. Yeah. You know, that's that's a good way to describe it for sure. Surreal and uh, you know ambiguous. So he, he goes to Francis's house and Francis is in this huge bathtub. It's more like a swimming pool inside his house. Yeah. And, and Pee Wee comes in and I love how he locks the door and he goes, scream all you want. We're miles from where anyone can hear you. 
Meanwhile, the dad and the butler are right outside the door. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, what? <laughs> and then <laughs> Pee Wee and Francis have this epic pool fight where they're like spinning around. Again, it's all so surreal. But I, I laughed that whole scene, like nonstop. It was so funny. Oh, my God. And I wanted to mention the guy that they hired to steal the bike for Francis. Yeah. Ralph Seymour. So he was in the TV show Making It with David Naughton. He was also, you would remember him as Creasy in Fletch. Remember? No. Remember, he was one of the guys on the beach. And he's and he's like, how old are you, Crease? He's like, I'm 19. And Fletch is like, you're not taking very good care of yourself, Crease. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that okay. guy. That was yeah. him. Okay. And he was also in the very last episode of Different Strokes. Season eight, where Arnold is like working for the school paper and doing a story on all the jocks taking steroids. I remembered him from that too. So I know way too much. About this trivial stuff from the seventies. I was gonna say almost all those references you just made. Most yeah. of the people listening are like, "Chris, are you just making stuff up because no. this can't possibly be real." Absolutely. You're the only one who knows these things. No, I'm, I'm telling you, it was. So I love probably my one of my favorite scenes. There's a few scenes in this movie I love, but when they're meeting in in Chuck's in the basement, and then he gets the whole gang together and they go over yeah. like exhibit after exhibit about his bike. Most of it is just useless stuff. He's like, exhibit A, a picture of me and my bike. Exhibit B, picture of me. What's missing? My bike. (laughs) (laughs) Exhibit D, a pen. Why? What's the significance? I don't know. (laughs) Exhibit Q, a scale of the entire ball. And then my favorite character, probably in the whole movie, Amazing Larry. So, oh, with the mohawk? Yeah. So he's talking during Pee Wee's speech and he's like, Amazing Larry, is there something you could share with the rest of us? Amazing Larry might be my favorite side character in any movie ever. I don't know what he always has been. The bald head, the feathers on the suction cups making that mohawk. He wears like a suit jacket. He never talks out loud. Again, surreal, bizarre, but I just love it. So... I don't know what you think of Amazing Larry, but I think he's great. He was on screen for 10 seconds. I really don't have an opinion one There's way or the other. There's just something about him that I always, always loved. So then I like, Pee-wee's like, this is a mystery. It's like pulling a thread that someone keeps knitting and knitting and knitting. And then everyone just leaves the room. And Dottie's like, come on, let's go upstairs. It's hot. And he's like, hot? It feels fine. In fact, I can't remember when I felt so cozy down here. And it made me realize during that scene, Pee Wee doesn't say funny things. It like, if you look at the script, it's not written in a way that gives him jokes or even yeah. funny things to say. If It's just written in simple kind of boring lines. It's his delivery. Yes. It's always his delivery of the lines. Like he puts all this extra meaning into what he says. It's almost like he doesn't exist in the same social situations or even inhabit the same world as the people around him. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know it's exactly what you're so talking about. so bizarre just the way he attacks everything. So the scene in the alley, I like too, when he's walking down the alley and the way Tim Burton directs the scene, it's really visually interesting because he casts this menacing shadow on the back wall and this group of thugs come up to him like as if they're going to mug him or beat him up or something. And he just hisses at them. And they scatter, you know, again, again, the character has like a dark side, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and again, I think that is, uh, I think that's a credit to Paul Rubens. You like, it's not just a one note character. I mean, typically it sort of falls within a range that you've, 
pretty much come to expect, but occasionally it's, he steps outside of that a little bit. And that, that scene where he's in the alley and it's all wet and he's raining and that, like it's that, that's not what you're expecting to see from him. But the fact that he does it in a way that you still believe that it's him, it, it worked really well. Originally as when he was developing this character, it was supposed to be even much darker. Like when, when, when he first sort of came up with it, like the, 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 he had the character doing things like, not necessarily in this movie, but just sort of like outside of it, like doing things like looking up girls skirts with mirrors on his shoes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But they eventually like realized that the character needed to be more innocent and appeal to kids. But that dark side still kind of lingers there, you know, and yeah. I, I don't know. I just I think it adds to the appeal of it. So the psychic sends him to the Alamo because she sees the sign Al and Moe's basement prices. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. That was funny. So. He meets one of my favorite side characters too, Mickey. When he gets in the car with the with Mickey, the fugitive, and then I love when Mickey asks Pee Wee to take the wheel because he can light up a smoke. Yeah, the look on Pee Wee's face when he's like kind of driving the car, he gives this kind of weird laugh because it it feels like, he, like maybe he's never driven a car before, like just a bike. Again, is he a child? Is he a grown up? I don't. And then they get pulled over by the cops. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I laughed so much during this scene because Pee Wee is in a dress. Yeah. <laughs> Mickey's got the beard and the glasses and they're like disguised as a married couple on their honeymoon. And I love how the cop says, step out of the car, ma'am. And Pee Wee's like, mm-hmm. something wrong, officer? And the cop's like, no, I just wanted to check you out in that cute outfit that you're wearing. Yeah. Like, what? Jeez. <laughs> and talk, then, about, talk about 80s. Like, I know. Holy and, cow. and Pee Wee just plays it up, right? He's like, he poses and he's like showing it off. And he's, Take a picture. It'll last longer. <laughs> again, something a kid would say. But and again, then, that's from it. That's as far as I understand, that's that's something that he's developed from his stand up. Because I yeah. think that line appears in some of his other movies and shows. Like that's something that becomes one of his staple catchphrases. But then he gets back in the car because the cop lets him go. Mickey right away mm-hmm. rips off the beard and glasses. Pee Wee stays in the dress <laughs> and he's just all happy as can be. So yeah. And then even this like hardened criminal Mickey like just looks at him and just smiles. And it's 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 almost like it's like everyone wishes they could be like as carefree and just love life the way that Pee Wee does. You know? Like it just Yeah, it's like he's he's not threatening and and almost um yeah, it's like he it's almost like he's a like an avatar for joy. Like you see him and it's, it's like you said, it's this innocence and this happiness. And it's all, it's like looking at it, it looking at the world through the best possible way, the, the lenses, you know, best possible lenses kind of thing. So when, and everyone he meets it, uh, clearly they, they take a shining to him and he explains yep. the story about the bike and they're all like, not that we see him, like that obviously is happening off camera. Cause they all reference it. Oh, I hope you find your bike. And, um, you know, and then that it's again, it's that positive reinforcement of, you know, you treat people nice and, and you treat people like you want to be treated kind of thing. And and throughout the course of the movie, there's there's constant callbacks as the characters start to reappear and things start to work out for them. So I found um, that every scene in this movie was like its own standalone work of art. Yeah. You know, like every single scene just like kind of had a beginning, middle end and it just stood on its own. When he gets picked up by Large Marge, probably one of the most famous scenes, yep. and her face goes all scary. Tim Burton loved using that claymation in his special effects back then. Eh? He did it so mm-hmm. well, but it just it comes off as dark and scary. You know, I, I felt like if you were a little kid, like you could be scared by that. They almost he almost cut that scene from the film too. 
Yeah, I remember it freaked me out when I was a little kid. Yeah, they were, he was going to cut it out because they were they were like looking at different things and they thought, ah, the, you know, special effects, we won't shoot that. And then thank God they left it in. Well, I, and I was I read a thing in the trivia that said if you, and, and I I I had to go back and rewatch the scene that Large March herself the whole time she's on screen she doesn't blink, and it just makes the character that much more like eerie and and right. scary. And so, cause I watched it and I never know, I'm like, Oh, like she, she just gives up the scary vibe. And then when I read that, I was like, Oh, well that's why I went back and rewatched it. I'm like, yep, that's what's doing it. The fact that she doesn't blink. I think, you know, you bring up a good point. Cause like everyone loves Pee Wee, right? Like he, even though he's this man child, he gets the attention of the waitress, Simone. And then mm-hmm. when he's riding the train with the hobo, they're like singing songs. Everybody loves Pee Wee. It doesn't matter if they're old or if they're young, if they're a criminal or a waitress or a hobo or everybody just loves the guy. So yep. it's so interesting. So he makes it to the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Jan hooks. I want to mention too, as yep. a tour guide, you probably best known for Saturday night live. Like she was on in the, the cast with, uh, with Dana Carvey and all them from like 86 to 91. Um, she was also in the, the last two seasons of Designing Women. She died in 2014 from cancer, but I thought she was really good. But the scene that she does, totally improvised. Tim Burton just let her go. And, oh, okay. And, yep, just said, go ahead, improvise the whole thing. And she did. Now, she started off in the Groundlings as well. So, you know, she was no stranger to improv work, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but, you know, funny enough, she suffered from stage fright. And, and I, I hear that a lot about performers, yeah. a lot, like especially comedians. A lot of them do. But. Phil Hartman helped her overcome it because he was with the groundlings and, and helped her work it out. So he's at the Alamo Pee Wee. And I love when he calls Dottie on the phone mm-hmm. <laughs> from him. She's like, I don't believe that you're there. And he goes, I'll prove it. And he just leans out and he's like, the stars at night are big and bright. And all the cowboys clap. Deep in the heart of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bizarre. This weird thing. So, and, and then he starts talking to Speck on the phone. Remember? And he's like talking to the oh, dog. Oh, yeah, the dog. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. The understanding. It's like Speck put Dottie back on. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. But uh, <laughs> I like also, uh, she's she agrees to send him money for the bus fare or whatever he needs. And then she's like, but you got to repay me by taking me to the drive-in. And he's like, oh, the call's breaking up. It's, I, I, I got to go. I got to go. And then he laughs. Yeah. Again, it's, it made me think, like, what's the deal? Like, it's not that he doesn't like her. He right. just shies away from anything sexual. Like, I don't know if he's just because he's childlike or like, I don't understand what the deal is. Yeah, Again, no, it's I, ambiguous. Yeah. And I, I think I think that's part of what's left up for de- debate. Is it that he doesn't understand, like doesn't know? Or is it that? He knows, but isn't interested in it. Like it's, it, and they don't dwell on it, and they don't have to. And you take away whatever you, whatever interpretation you want from that. But, uh, but so going back to your Alamo for a second, I was yeah. reading uh, after after Paul Rubens died. I saw a lot of things on social media, and uh, apparently the official Alamo website or Twitter account or Facebook group or whatever they put a thing on there where they were like, you know, R.I.P. Paul Rubens, P.B. Herman. They're like. Uh, not a day goes by where someone doesn't show up at the Alamo and ask to see the basement. Yep. <laughs> and so they said like some, some things just, that's it. That's a part of pop culture. That's never going away for the rest of, you know, for the foreseeable future, people are going to go to the Alamo and ask about the basement because of this movie. Yeah. So. And, and how much did, you know, did he drive tourism there in addition to what they already had? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, I also liked when he was in Texas, he goes to that bar and goes on the mechanical bull and he gets thrown and loses consciousness. 
and they're, yeah. they're all around him because they, everyone likes him, right? Are you okay? What do you remember? I remember the Alamo. And they all start hooting and hollering because everyone in Texas <laughs> remembers the Alamo. That's so funny. And then I like when he goes into the biker bar and he's using the phone and everyone's loud. So he like shushes everybody. <laughs> He's like, I'm trying to use the phone. <laughs> now, I don't know if you, if you recognized, but remember the head biker girl came over and she's yeah. like, I'm going to kill. You see who that was? I, I didn't know until I read it after, it's but yeah. Cassandra Peterson, Elvira. Yeah. You, she yeah. looks different because she doesn't have the goth makeup on. I recognized her though. You don't see the cleavage and stuff, but I mean, I, I recognized her right away. So I love that he asked for one final request and he does that tequila by the champs. And you're right. That's not the first time he did that because he did that um, on the gong show. Oh yeah. Back in the seventies with Chuck Berry. Yeah. So that wasn't the first time he'd been working on that for a while and he incorporated it. But the thing is just like everybody else, the bikers come to love him. Yeah. Right. I love it. They just, they're like, here, take a motorbike and Mm -hmm. go back, which he promptly crashes. (laughs) Yeah. And goes to the hospital. And then, then that that's where he sees, um, uh, the uh, Jason Hervey with his bike because he's like a movie star or whatever. Yeah. So I love, he goes to the movie lot and the studio guard that he went past, what, I recognized him too because I was like, I was looking for everything in this movie. That was Bob McClurg. He was an actor from the ground leagues as well. Again, me with all my obscure trivia. He was yeah. Chicken Charlie in Cheech and Chong's next movie. Sure. His sister's Edie McClurg. You know, from Ferris Bueller. Her, I know, yeah. yeah. So lots of Groundlings connections in this movie, obviously. Um, other, the other thing, too, I noticed was there was a lot of quirky moments. Like, we mentioned already how ambiguous it is and stuff. When he gets to the movie studio, remember there was one scene where, where there's the macho guy dressed like Iron Man? But he's got this yes. high-pitched voice. And the woman yeah. with the flower headdress, it's got, like, the deep man's voice. It's all, like, so just weird and quirky. You well, know? and I read after that that guy that was in that like red armor, mm-hmm. knight's armor, he ended up being one of the recurring characters on the Pee Wee's Playhouse. So he, mm-hmm. he obviously was friends with uh, with Paul Rubens. And then when he gets his bike and he's trying to escape, and there's like a pink and a blue elephant blocking the alley, <laughs> like it's like, so weird. And then I love the golf cart chase, and Twisted Sister <laughs> is, is shooting the music video. Burning yeah, Hall. it, it kind of reminded me of like the end of Blazing Saddles. On steroids, you know, like when they go into the movie yes. studio and all hell breaks loose. And then I, of course, I love the pet store on fire. Yeah. <laughs> he, he goes in to save like all the puppies and everything. He leaves the snakes and then he comes trip after trip with more pets. And then he gets the net to get all the, the goldfish out. And finally, he comes out with two handfuls of snakes and just passes out. It's so funny. And then... Dottie shows up with his bike and the, all he says is my bike. And he totally ignores her. Yeah. And it like it, this, the scene calls out for him to kiss her, you know, and he just doesn't. Right. And then I like how they, they make the movie of his life with James Brolin as Peewee and Morgan Fairchild as Dottie. Yeah. It reminded me of the beginning of Austin Powers gold member. Yes. Remember when they had like all these like, when they had like Tom Cruise and, um, and uh, Gwyneth Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. yeah, doing yeah. that. It reminded me of that. And Phil Hartman was in that too. He was a reporter interviewing Francis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I recognized him. I mean, his voice is so distinct. Oh, I, recognize of course. Him. I recognize his voice before I recognize his face. And then sort of the movie ends, James Brolin and Morgan Fairchild kiss on the big screen at the drive-in. 
multiple times there, like hugging and kissing. And I was and like, wow, this again, movie has a lot of kissing. It's supposed to pull away, like any traditional Hollywood movie would pull away, and it would be the real Pee Wee and the real Dottie mm-hmm. kissing. But it doesn't. It pulls away, and it's Pee Wee and Dottie riding their bike across the screen. Because it's yep. got to be like that ambiguous, non-sexual thing. And that's the end of the movie. So well, just, he's got that great line where she's he's like, let's get out of here. And she's like, don't you want to see how it ends? And he's like, I don't have to see it. I lived it. Yep. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so, so having gone back and watched it after all these years and gone through the whole thing, give me a rating out of 10 on this. Got to give it a nine. Ooh, wow. Eight and a half to a nine. Eight, I'm going to go with a nine. I'm feeling generous today. Good, because I'm giving it a nine too. Yeah. Definitely nine out of ten. Like I, I was almost surprised how much I liked this. It, it was fantastic, genius film, and it has aged unbelievably well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's aged nicely. I think looking at it, like so many of these movies, we go back and you're like, well, when you look at it with today's lens, it's all these problems. I, I didn't. I found the opposite. I found looking at it with today's lens, I thought it, it aged well. I thought the humor aged really well. I thought. The any of the, you know, the the problematic baggage that sort of came to it a few years later with the things that happened in his personal life, like at this point that nobody gives a crap anymore. And I think you can really look back and seeing like how Tim Burton became a huge, a huge director and Danny Elfman became a huge composer. Like those things only helped make this movie age better. And uh, yeah, no, it, it was really good. I was really glad we had an opportunity to go back and watch it. It's unfortunate that this was the circumstance that sort of drove us to do it. Right. But um, I'm glad you know, we I'm glad, did it. I'm, I'm glad, glad we did it as well. Yeah. yeah. Nine out of 10. I thought it was great. Okay, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, Derek, this movie came out in 1985. Quite a year for movies. Now, I didn't go over the box office at the top of the show, which I usually do. But the number one movie at the box office that year was Back to the Future. Yeah, I was going to say, got to be Back to the Future. Yeah, and then yeah. Beverly Hills Cop, Rambo, First Blood Part Two, Rocky IV, and Cocoon were the top five. Okay. Now, Pee-wee's Big Adventure finished all the way down at 15 because it made... Like, That's still respectable. Yeah, pretty good. $41 million, just ahead of Brewster's Million. That so was that a was funny movie, good. too. And then what else we got? Spies Like Us was at 20. I like that one. Commando, Killing Fields, 22. And Teen Wolf was at 23. So that was a really good year for movies. Because I didn't even mention, there was also like Witness and The Goonies and Fletch Mm -hmm. and View to a Kill and European Vacation and The Breakfast Club. Like great, great year for movies. So we are going to play a little game here that I like to call Pick the Flick. Get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. Okay, I don't have to give you the year. I'm just going to give you the synopsis. You name the film because all of tonight's movies were from 1985. Oh, jeez. This, right? this sounds like it's going to be harder than it should be. No, it should be easy. It was a great year for movies. It was a great year for oh. movies. So I'm going to give you the synopsis. And then all you have to do is give me the title of the film, okay? Yeah. Two high school nerds use a computer program to literally create the perfect woman who promptly turns their lives upside down. Yeah, it's a weird science. Okay, a teenager believes that the newcomer in his neighborhood is a vampire. He turns to an actor in a television horror show for help to deal with the undead. 
Nice. We actually did this movie on our show. It's mm-hmm. uh, Fright Night. All right, two bumbling government employees think they are U.S. spies, only to discover that they're actually decoys for nuclear war. Yeah, you just mentioned that, spies like us. A retired special forces colonel tries to save his daughter, who is abducted by his former subordinate. Ooh, from 1985? 1985. Wow. That does not sound familiar at all. I have no idea. It's Commando. Commando. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. A teenager with a massive facial skull deformity and biker gang mother attempt to live as normal a life as possible under the circumstances. Oh, that sounds like a mask. I did that one for our buddy, uh, Greg. So mm. I know he likes that movie. Uh, and a, an officially dead cop is trained to become an extraordinary, unique assassin in service of the U.S. president. Wow, that does not sound familiar either. I was going to say RoboCop, but I know that's 87. I, I don't know. One of my favorites, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, a group of friends just out of college struggle with adulthood. Group of friends just out of college. Was that um, the, oh, that was the one with uh, the stupid name. That was uh, St. Almost Fire. That was it. Okay, the movie uh, doesn't even have a fire. Stupidest name for a I movie know. ever. A bored New Jersey suburban housewife's fascination with a free-spirited woman she has read about in the personal columns leads to her being mistaken for the woman herself. Oh, was that the Madonna one? Um, Desperately Seeking Susan? Very good. Okay. A troubled writer moves into a haunted house after inheriting it from his aunt. Troubled writer. This movie was, was that, so um, underrated. It was so good. Was it, was it just, was it the movie just called House? Yep, with William Cat. Very good. Okay, an overworked air traffic controller takes his family on a beach vacation, but is soon beset by a series of mishaps. Um, hmm. Oh, I loved this movie so much. Was it Summer Rental with John Candy? It was, yes. All right, a delicious, mysterious goo that oozes from the earth is marketed as the newest dessert sensation. But the tasty treat rots more teeth when zombie-like snackers who only want to consume more of the strange substance at any cost begin infesting the world. Um, it's got to be one of those crappy zombie movies. Was it uh, Night of the Living Dead Part 2? Oh, it was the stuff. Oh. The stuff. It was this goo and they, they, they sold it. Okay, yeah, the last one. The goofy students of a remedial driver's education class find themselves butting heads with their abusive police instructors. Oh, yeah. This was... Um, oh, my God. Uh, it wasn't licensed to drive. Was it just called... Uh, it was like driving school. It was moving violations. You got it. Yes. Oh. 
Yes, with John Murray, of course, Bill Murray's yeah. brother. I, we like that movie. I knew, it, I knew it would take me a minute. Yeah, I know. I we had mentioned that one in the past. I remember you yeah. guys liked that movie. So okay, so we we made it through. We did. We got through trivia. You did very very well. I think you only missed two. I missed a couple. couple yeah, so it was good. So next time, what do you say? Maybe we'll come back with a topic. Maybe we'll do a movie review. We'll figure that out. Yeah, we'll see what's happening in the world around us. I mean, hopefully we don't have any more celebrity deaths, but uh, maybe something might happen that'll give us an idea. But otherwise, we'll come back with a topic. All right, so we'll do that. Until then, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.